0: that you are worthy of worship. You are a mighty fortress. You have called us to abide in you. You have called us to trust you. And now as we turn our attention to your word in just a few moments, Lord, would you give us ears to hear? And often we think that this is where one person is talking and everyone else is passive. Oh, but let that not be the case. Let us all be active, active in hearing your word, all of us, myself included, that we might not just hear it and understand it, but we might apply it to our lives. And so we ask for your help in these ways. Lord, we pray for other churches. We thank you for Friendly Grove Baptist Church, Lord, here in West Jefferson. We ask that you would meet with them and encourage them today. We know that we are not... uh, the only church in this community, and so we thank you for brothers and sisters in other places, and Lord, that we pray your blessing upon their their work and their gatherings this morning. Father, we lift up other churches within our uh, closer network. We think of Sovereign Grace Church in Middle Tennessee, that you would be with the brethren there uh, just north of Nashville, that you would encourage them, draw them to yourself. Um, Lord, use them uh, in, in getting the gospel out to that area of Nashville. And so we thank you for what you're doing uh, in and through them and through our network. Father, we also lift up the persecuted church. It's hard to believe in our world uh, with such freedoms that we enjoy that there are believers in hiding and believers that are secretly meeting because they fear uh, attacks uh, from others that uh, do not want them to be worshiping. And so we lift up believers in Mali in West Africa. We pray that you would um, guard and protect your church against uh, militant groups like Boko Haram and others that uh, seek to kill um, Christians and to uproot uh, missions in the bush of Africa and even in the cities. And so we pray for your grace uh, in Mali that Lord, you would send missionaries there, you would continue your gospel work and where even there is persecution, we know that you um, are seeding your church, uh, even sometimes with the blood of your saints. And so we ask for your, your grace, um, and we pray for the persecuted church. Father, we know that there's many that don't know you. And while those people are right here in this town and city, we also know that uh, there are many around the world that don't, have never heard of you and don't even have access if they wanted to hear about you. And that grieves our hearts, oh God. And so we lift up uh, the Jiarong people, uh, the Shanghai people, Lord of China, that you would be with them, that you would send missionaries to them, that they would have the gospel in their language, that uh, you would give um, Bible translators and uh, urge upon uh, many people's hearts, including young people, to have a passion for people groups around the world that have never heard and that they might give themselves to it. We pray that you'd raise up missionaries, Lord, to send to these people. For how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they go unless they're sent? And so we ask for your help in these ways. Father, we pray for trouble spots in our world that are no doubt on our minds. We think of the wars in various places. We pray for your grace for refugees and those who have lost loved ones. We pray for uh, your help and that you are orchestrating all things for your purposes. Uh, in all parts of the world, from uh, Ukraine and Russia to um, Palestine and all that's happening in, in Israel and Gaza, Lord, that you would uh, oversee that, Lord. And we know you do, and we pray that you would show your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray for our own military, that you would give grace as we seek to, to uh, help in many ways. Uh, but, Lord, we pray for wisdom in, uh, for our government leaders, We know that it's kind of a raw uh, time in being an election year. We pray for our president. We pray for those in his cabinet. We pray for those running for office that Lord you would give grace on all sides. Father, we pray for those who are grieving. We think of um, our our country with uh, the shootings and things that have happened this week that you would bring healing in a way that only you can. That Father, you would be um, our Prince of Peace that you would save many and draw many to yourself through these uh, horrific uh, acts of violence. So we ask for your help there. Lord, we pray for those grieving in our own midst. We think of those who have lost loved ones like George and Grace Ann with the death of uh, Buddy. Uh, we continue to pray for uh, others like the Pose who lost a cousin and Ron and Sharon as they continue to grieve too. Uh, their, uh, for their uh, niece, uh, Charlotte, Lord and Jimmy and the kids, Lord, that you'd be with them. Father, for um, Eric and Robin Prevet and Rose and Quinn and Jared and Lee as they grieve the loss of Liella this last week. Uh, we just pray, uh, it was really two weeks ago, Lord, we pray for them as they continue to um, grieve there and heal. Uh, we pray for others who are um, grieving, Lord, still uh, lost loved ones earlier this year, that you would um, help them and encourage them pray for those who are healing. We think of Christina, Lord, and um, others that are that are healing from procedures, and Lord, that you would give grace. Lift up uh, the missionary John Cordy, Lord, as he battles esophageal cancer. We think of Zoe Lawrence and others, Lord, who are healing. We pray for those that are sick as well. Father, for our expectant mothers, we thank you for them and these precious babies in the womb. Uh, we think of Whitney and Sarah and even Liz. uh daughter-in-law Lord that you'd be with her and uh, Lord that you would bring uh, great um, excitement and yet with that Lord you'd bring a healthy baby and healthy deliveries Lord in the days ahead that you would show your grace and your mercy there father we thank you for our shut-ins we lift up Janice to you and Jack Tyler that you'd be with them as um, we love them and we know they can't be here but very much would want to be here and so we lift them to you Father, for Abigail, Lord, as she prepares um, in a couple weeks to go to Bolivia, that you'd be with her and her team as they seek to bring uh, medical care to many uh, people along um, this tributary of the Amazon uh, in March. Lord, that you would be with them, that you would help with preparation, that you give them great health and great success uh, to not just bring um, a a gift of, of well-being to their physical bodies, but Lord, that they might hear the gospel as well. And so we we lift this to you. Father, we um, miss our brother Brian Furches, Lord. We pray continually for him, Lord, as he starts his new position out of Orion Baptist Church, that you'd be with him. And Father, for uh, Christ alone, uh, for our church plant down in Wilkesboro, that you would be with them. Be with Pastor Tim as he preaches this morning. Uh, continue to be with his health, Lord, after all these Uh, this irregular heartbeat that he's had and the tests that are being run, that you give wisdom to to him and his cardiologist. And Lord, we just lift that whole situation uh, to you. And so we ask for your help and your patience. Lord, now as we turn uh, to your word, would you help us to uh, abide in you, to listen to you, and to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Trust you all are doing well on this fine Sunday and we are going to continue our journey through uh, the book of Genesis uh, really looking at uh, the life of Isaac in recent days so if you would make your way to Genesis chapter 27 and we will uh, read verses 1 through 13 uh, this morning and would you stand with me as we read God's word together this is God's word When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. You shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to him to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. When we think of life and how we respond to people, often you might find yourself either one who seeks to control the circumstances or you find yourself frustrated because you find yourself often being one that is controlled. And none of us like to be controlled from our government down to our personal lives and our own homes and friendships. The sense of control is something that we often have to yield to and even as believers, we are called to often yield to the Lord. We're to yield to his leadership, to yield to his sovereign work in our lives. When you think about this sense of one who seeks power and control, there's multiple examples in Scripture. Even from the very beginning of what we've been studying in Genesis, we see that after the fall of Satan, Satan himself sought to control the situation, particularly in influencing human choice and behavior stealing, trying to at least, the worship of Yahweh, the God who created all things and was intimately involved in the life of his image bearers, Adam and Eve. As we look at the story, we see even Adam and Eve learn to seek to control the situation as they blamed each other for uh, their sin. You might think of others in the Old Testament and New Testaments, of those who tried to control such situations. We think of Pharaoh as far as the Exodus was concerned. When the ten plagues came against him, he sought to be powerful in control. All the way to the book of Esther, we see the character Haman uh, trying to orchestrate things for the death of the Jews, and yet the, uh, the tides turned upon him. And by the end of the book, he was the one hanging from the news that he had designed for Mordecai. All the way to Judas Iscariot who sought to control the money bag and sought to control what uh, would happen in Jesus' life. And yet the reverse happened and he ultimately killed himself. And Jesus did go to the cross and ultimately died in the place of his dear saints. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And so often we think about the negative examples in scripture of these that were trying to control the future, or even control what God was doing and how he was doing it. And obviously, we're shown to be empty at the end. Well, in our text today, we actually see one who is a God-fearer, one who is known for his faith and trusting God in the long-term sense. And in this snapshot of his life, we find that he's trying to control where the blessing goes. When he knows what was said The years and years before the birth of his own children that the older would serve the younger. Ultimately, we know that God is in control. He is providentially working all things to his ends. When you read through the book of Genesis, you can't miss that uh, redemptive theme that God is the one who is orchestrating these things. He is the one who is providentially leading his people. He is the one who is redeeming mankind. He is the one who is making these covenants and that he is uh, making the initiative to his people and calling them out to follow him, as we saw with Abraham and now with Isaac and soon with Jacob. It's his chosen people. It's his way of working, if you will. So I want to look at this passage and four points. First of all, we see that Esau is preparing for death. It's a preparation that he is going to have. It was uh, very normal in that time for you to pass the blessing to the firstborn. That was uh, the reality that was to, to happen, that the first would be uh, of, of the one that had the blessing. But we also see that in doing so, that this was something that God had planned to do uh, opposite, that he would bring uh, Jacob into this uh, place of the firstborn. Secondly, we're gonna see that Rebecca gets involved and she also makes her own plot in how she's going to do it. Esau himself wanted the blessing to go to, or uh, Isaac rather, wanted the blessing to go to Esau, but then Rebekah wants it to go to Jacob. And even though she is in line with what God had said he would do, she's doing it in a evil and conniving way. Thirdly, we're going to look at the precaution of Jacob. Jacob actually is passive until we see in verse 13 he's now complicit in this plot. And ultimately, we'll wrap this up in looking at how God is speaking uh, in this passage in verses 1 through 13 and make some applications to our own lives. So let's take a look at this. Look at verses 1 through 4 first of all. We know the context of this uh, as we were looking back that... uh, esau has taken foreign wives that this was a spit in the face to isaac and rebecca there's this challenge to uh, god's ultimate uh, blessing upon their family and esau of course is not living out what uh, he ought to and this is very clear and this is in the context of god bringing peace with abimelech which was the uh, philistine uh, king there in this area of Beersheba where they're dwelling. So it's in this context that Isaac is continuing to get old. And notice it says in verse one, Isaac, when he was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. So a few things here to take note of, not to miss out on that first of all, Isaac, Uh, when he was 40 is when he took his bride, Rebecca. We see that in the text uh, just a few chapters ago. And then in chapter 25, verse 26, we saw that uh, when Jacob and Esau were born, the author of this uh, book, uh, Moses, wrote down that Isaac was then 60 years old. And in our last passage here at the end of uh, chapter 26 and verse 34, it tells us that Esau was now 40 years old. So you add 40 to 60, and we know that at this point when, when Esau takes wives, that Isaac was 100 years old plus. We can get a little more refined if you add some other uh, issues together like in chapter 25 uh, verse 17 we know that Ishmael lived 137 years and we know that Ishmael was just a little bit older than Isaac because remember um, he was the uh, son of uh, Abraham's midwife and therefore uh, when uh, Sarah gave birth to Isaac he would have been about 12 or 13 years younger. So if, you, if, I, if Ishmael died at 137 how old is Isaac? Well he's around 25, 125 years old. He's 12, 13 years younger. So in this context, he's saying he's old. So if you think you're old in the building, you're not 125, you're not old yet, according to this passage. But all joking aside here, notice here that he is noticing his age. And notice it's showing in his uh, his physical um, demeanor. His eyes are dim so that he could not see. There's this sense of physical infirmity that his eyes, he's not able to recognize. As we'll see later in this passage um, in in chapter 27, he's not even able to recognize his own family. Um, So his blindness is is getting worse. And he's saying, I don't know uh, the day of my death. We do know from the scriptures in chapter 35, verse 28 in in Genesis here, that he's going to live another 40 plus years. So he dies at 100 and what, 187, I believe. And so he lives a, a lot longer. Um, uh, and, and yet he's in this condition. But notice he's thinking. He realizes that the blessing has to go on. He knows this from his father Abraham. And he should know further that it was going to go to Jacob. Because this was told to him. Even in the manner of Esau and Jacob's birth. Remember how one usurped the other? And then secondly, in the context of all that has happened in his family, it's been very clear that Esau is not the one who is going to receive the blessing, that God has willed that it would go to the second son, Jacob. But notice here the context. He says at the end of verse 1, he says to his son, "Here are my son, and he he ushers him to him. He says, here I am. In verse 2, he said, behold, I am old. It's the first rap that I know of in the Old Testament. Behold, I am old. Do not, or do you not know, I do not know the day of my death. So the, the issue here of his desire is to pass this blessing to Esau about his death coming up. And, and he wants him to take hold of it. And he says that this is something that he is trying to do. This is the the plan, this is his purpose, this is his goal. But we know this is in direct opposition to what the Lord said ought to happen, that the older would serve the younger. There's almost a denial in the spirit of Isaac and the disposition of Isaac. It is not one of faith, but one of just presumption. One of I'm the one is in charge, not ultimately the Lord. There's no sense of yielding to the Lord. There's no sense of seeking the Lord's wisdom. It's I am getting old. I'm trying to make preparation, which is a good thing. We're all called to make preparation. But notice that it's his way. So notice here that we have these preparations going on. And so what does he request? Well, look at verse 3. We get a little bit more knowledge here about Isaac and his character it says now then take your weapons your quiver and your bow and go to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me what delicious food such as i love and bring it to me so that i may eat that my soul may bless you before i die and at this point we're probably thinking hey The only thing keeping us from lunch is this sermon. So you see this, and it's such descriptive words of Isaac. Isaac is a foodie. He loves delicious food. That's the context here of what he's asking his son. Now, you think this is new. It's not. Turn back to chapter 25. When Jacob and Esau were born, it quickly goes through. Uh, the recount of uh, how that happened, that two nations were in Rebekah's womb. But look down to verse 27 of chapter 25. It says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And then here's the kicker that we're going to focus on multiple times this morning. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago. That dysfunction happened from the very beginning. As these boys grew, mama had her favorite, her mama's boy, and daddy had his favorite. And this is the very context that Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes this in chapter 25 to give us really the understanding of what's going to come about in this story that God was working these things. There's very much a dysfunction here when parents are playing favorites and the children are feeling this. There's a sense of the future. There's a sense of honor. There's a sense of all that they were called to be. In fact, Proverbs tells us we should train up our children in the way they should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. And it's not necessarily just teaching spiritual truths there. There's the the weight of that proverb is really speaking vocationally. That we're to teach our children what their gifts are and what they're good at. And that's the context here in in Genesis 25. Esau clearly shows himself to be a hunter and and talented in that way. Skillful, it says. A man of the field. There's wisdom there. While Jacob, on the other hand, it's not wrong. It's just different. He's quiet. He's quiet. And we see in previous passages where Esau sells his birthright that Jacob's cooking. He's in the kitchen. He's homely in this sense. He's involved in in these things. So while he knows how to prepare meals, his brother knows how to get the raw materials for such meals. Either way, Isaac wins because he loves delicious food. But notice it's a context of this, his desire for such an earthly thing that blinds him not just physically he's blind but he's spiritually blind he's spiritually blind to ultimately what god is doing in this very moment of his life and so in the midst of this we have more dysfunction take a look at verse five our next point the plot of rebecca now as we've looked at rebecca she was a woman of great character we saw this when uh, the servant of Abraham went to find her out. She was a worshipper of Yahweh. Her family is fine. She was her faith was shown in that she was willing to go across a desert and travel multiple days to marry a man she had never met, but trusting God to do this. We see her great faith. We see how God um, worked in her life as she was barren, and God finally gave her uh, two, uh, gave her twins. And these twins are wrestling in her and we know that she was confused about that and God told her that it's two nations at war within her and we don't have time to look at that this morning but that's back in chapter 25 verse 23 that the Lord says that to her and these things are happening ultimately for God's plan and God's purpose. But it's here that we see the dysfunction of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage let alone their parenting. But notice here in verse 5, it says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. It's a, another proof text here that women are always listening, men. So be careful what you say and when you say it, because they're always listening. <laughs> in a good way. But notice here, she's listening with the intent to understand, but also to usurp what her husband is trying to do. Now, in God's providence, God uses this, We'll see that Rebecca is on the right side of the coin as far as the direction that God is leading to bless Jacob. But notice it's not in the way necessarily that it would happen. Isn't this interesting? When we're reading through scripture, God gives us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, really the plan before it happens. You you see this pattern in the Old Testament that God made this promise to Abraham, thus. We're kind of reading with anticipation of what's going to happen. There's this suspense that's happening in, in, in the Word as we're reading it. And we're, we know what God has said, but how is it going to unfold? We can't even see it. And we saw this with, with Abraham sacrificing his son, didn't we? It, it's just building. All, God's asking for Abraham to sacrifice his son. And yet, in our, the back of our minds as readers of the Scriptures, we're saying, well, this has got to work out somehow because Isaac has, his seed has to survive. And so the climax of of the angel appearing and stopping Abraham, Abraham, do not slay your son. And other climaxes in the book of Genesis, and here's yet another one. We know that God is going to basically bring Isaac uh, to a place where he is passing the blessing on to Jacob, but his Disposition is the opposite of what God is ultimately going to do. And we know that because we've already read it. This is a promise. That Esau despised his birthright. And so all through this, while there's great dysfunction, God is providentially working his will through the human dysfunction that we're seeing. And so what does she do? Notice Rebecca was listening. So then she, it says, So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Hey, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now notice it's a slight variation that... Uh, she's bringing out. She actually names the Lord in this way. He was speaking of a blessing, but notice that she overheard this. And so what is her plot? Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. So she's speaking to her son. Notice in the context here that uh, her son is 40 plus at this point. Moms, you have an influence on your children, even to latter age. And while they are not in your home, what you say affects them. I think we can see that here for good or for bad. What you say is important. And sons have a tendency to not just rub against their fathers, but to listen to their mothers and to be soft to them. So he's listening. Notice Jacob's not even responding yet. She's saying, obey my voice as I've commanded you. She's come up with this plot, not Jacob. Jacob has come up with plots in the past. We see his conniving of of demanding that his brother, oh, you want some of my stew? Well, sell your birthright to me. It was a low way to take advantage of his brother's hunger in that moment. But Esau was just as foolish to sell his birthright for food and make that trade. Notice that the story of Jacob and Esau, it's all around food. It makes us hungry, probably. You're like, that stew must have been good. But even here, our attitudes about food, we see that weirdness with Isaac because he's a, he, he really loves delicious food. There's nothing wrong with loving delicious food. God gave us tongues to taste good food. It's good. But notice that he's lifting this up above other things like faith in what the Lord is doing. Guard yourself in the areas of things that you enjoy. It's often that the Lord uses the context of that which we enjoy to challenge us ultimately to the Lord, that he would not be replaced with the idolatry of one thing or the other. Food, even in our culture, can become idolatrous. We overeat. We eat that which is unhealthy. We eat too much. We, there's all kinds of things that we, we could see applications here. And that's not necessarily the context here, but he loves food, and that's blinding him from his ultimate desire, uh, which is God himself, and to consider his promises, let alone his own family and what's best for them. And he's missing it. And so Rebecca acts in this way and says, here's the plan. I'm gonna, you go get the two goats. I'm gonna make a a food that he loves. We're gonna have a cook-off here. I'm gonna cook quickly, and we're gonna get it to uh, Isaac before Isaac. Esau even gets back. That, know, that What we know from this is that even though she's, we're not going to look at this passage this morning, but the way this plays out is that Rebecca knew what kind of food and exactly how Isaac liked it. And her wisdom of longer years than um, Esau is that she could fool her husband into thinking that it came as wild game. And that shows us a difference here is that, that she is, putting her best out against her son's best, Esau, to ultimately win uh, Isaac over to steal a blessing. So then in verse 10, she says, "'And you shall bring it to your father to eat, "'so that he may bless you before he dies.'" The irony of all this is that Isaac is gonna live another 40 plus years. He thinks he's going to die. The context of it, he thinks he's going to die. He's not gonna die. And so there's a presumption about even his own life. So Isaac is a mess as far as how he's discerning his own life, how he's discerning what the future is, and how he's discerning how it should happen. And so now we see, we've seen Isaac, we've seen Rebecca now, now we see the dysfunction of Jacob. Jacob, you would think, would just go along with this as a conniver, right? As one who usurps from his own birth, he's known as one who would do such a thing. But notice in verse 11, Jacob, out of character in a certain way, says this. Jacob says to Rebekah's mother, this is not a good idea. Now that's my translation here. He says, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. That's a fact. He is a smooth man. We saw this earlier in the text, that their genetics were quite different. And then in verse 12, he says, perhaps... My father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and to bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Jacob is actually the most sane one thus far in this narrative. He's saying, Mom, bad idea. How are we going to do this? Like, I get your plan. I get what you want to do. Food is one thing. You can fool Dad with what the food is. But, hey, my skin, if I'm just in the room and he feels me, it's over. I can't fool him, and we'll see how this takes place in further passages, but the focus here is on Jacob's precaution. He doesn't want to be cursed. Now, that's very interesting. It's very interesting in the context of Jacob's life. Jacob, we know, is chosen of God. We're seeing that in the text, but he is not a pleasant person. He has connived, he's stolen, he's he's usurping his brother all through his life. You can see the pressure rising. And in the latter part of this text, Esau finally confesses that he wants to kill his brother after dad dies. It's just building. And yet in the context of this, Jacob has one characteristic that should not be ignored. He is after the blessing of God. It's interesting. In the context of his warped character, God is bringing his blessing upon him and Jacob wants blessing, does not want cursing. Notice in the context of even selling of the birthright, he connived him in such a way that he could not lose. He gets the stew, I get the blessing. Total unfair advantage. But... If he agreed to it, he would have the blessing. Even here, the same attitude. I want to uh, be cautious. I want to be conservative here. I don't want to take a risk, but I want the blessing. And so it's in this. We know this is a clarity because his mother realizes this. And look what she says in verse 13. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me. Wow. Wow. Mothers are willing to do things for their children. But even in the darkness of human depravity and the darkness of dysfunction in our families, that a mother would be willing to take the negative results for a sinful action of her own child. Let your curse be on me, my son. But she says, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Now we're stopping there this morning, but we'll see the outplay of this uh, next week. But in the context of this, Isn't it interesting that as soon as Jacob gets this green light, no risk, success probable, he goes for it and he goes with his mother's plot. Now there's all kinds of things that are wrong in this text as we can see. One thing that's missing completely is dispositions ultimately to God. And in this, in our last point, I want to make this clear and then make some application to our lives. First of all, God is ultimately working all this for his purposes, is he not? We'll look at this in Romans, that... It was before they were even born that God chose Jacob, it says. The rest of the Old Testament speaks that God is working through the promises that he made to Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And ultimately it's through Jacob's sons that Israel, the nation, would come. And ultimately it's through Israel that ultimately the Son of God would come forth. The Messiah that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But notice, when God said that he would do this, he didn't say how. Did we not see this in the life of Abraham when his faith was tested? And Sarah said, here, take my handmaiden, Hagar. We'll have, we can't have children, so let's have a children, child through her. And God said, no, you're trying to do my will your way. Same thing is happening here. He's saying, I will, the older will serve the younger. But he didn't say how this would happen. And even in the midst of our sin and our human conniving, in the context of what we might call a God-fearing family overall in the course of their lives, they're resulting to evilness, conniving, lying, presumption, hiding, and every other evil thing that's going on here, let alone envy, jealousy, and ultimately we'll see later in this passage murder, premeditated murder is coming. It's dark. But this is what I love about the scriptures. It just shows us we're right here in the text. So if this is true of you, instead of hiding it, just you got brothers here in the text. And it should bother us. It should show us who we are and the ugliness of it. And that if there's anyone who could trust, I mean, God audibly spoke to Abraham and Isaac. How is it that they're missing it? It shows the depth of human depravity that when God is clearly trying to communicate to us, our ears are plugged. That I'm going to bring a blessing upon you and your family. And what does Esau do? He sells his birthright. I'm going to bring a blessing upon your family. What does he do? He goes, takes foreign wives. He associates with idolaters. He connects himself to them. Runs the opposite direction. Sound familiar? And Jacob, while he's in the home and he's hearing these things and knows of the Lord and and what God is doing in him and through him, he has failed to have that personal interaction, which we'll see in just a few chapters, that God is going to change this man's life forever. But oftentimes, we try to do God's will our way. And this is exactly what's happening in the dysfunction of this family. We're trying to control, we're trying to manipulate, we're trying to get our way. And God is calling us in one, one application point to yield to him. That's it. We're called to yield to him. There was no sense of Esau saying, God, I'm going blind, I think I'm going to die. What is your will? How shall I do this? There's none of that. Rebecca, she's not saying, Lord, my husband's about to do the wrong thing. Would you please intervene? I thought you said that these two babies that were in my womb that I felt that were struggling. You said the older will serve the the younger. There's two nations. I don't know how this is going to happen. My husband's about to make a a horrible mistake. As if Isaac could change human history. As if Isaac could challenge God's word. But men are fickle. We can be tricked as we'll see Isaac is. As we saw Esau was. That doesn't mean that God is pro-lying and pro-trickery, but he's simply using and orchestrating the sinfulness of man to his desired ends. And what this should encourage us in is that even as dysfunctional, horrible sinners that we are, God is working through that. He has redeemed us from those And he's turning these into gems of his glory, what he's ultimately gonna do. And at the end of all these people's lives, who's getting the glory? It's ultimately God. So, what? What about us this morning? Of two uh, encouragements or exhortations and five warnings, and I wanna move quickly And then we'll close. First of all, as we saw in verse 2, Isaac was trying to be a, a controller of the situation as a father, as a husband, and he was being presumptuous. And notice that it's in the context of the end of life. And I want to encourage us there that if Isaac is being tempted in the latter years of his life, so can we when we're tired, physical infirmities like blindness is coming upon him, that we would be spiritually awake, that we would not be presumptuous in our estate planning. We would not be presumptuous in the future of our own families. Why? Because God has not had the final say yet. And we shouldn't be presumptuous. We should trust the Lord in this. And so we need to guard ourselves from such presumptuous behavior in the way that we treat our children, let alone the way we treat our parents' children, that we're called to honor them, we're called to love them. There's all kinds of warnings here about being presumptuous and learning to be loving to our families, even when they've sinned against us. Secondly, another warning from this text comes from verse four, that we're not to allow the pleasures of this life to blind us from the treasures that are ultimately eternal. While Esau had sold his birthright in previous chapters for the sake of a pot of stew, here Isaac is asking for a meal instead of seeking to do God's will, to do what God had, had already revealed to him. And we know that this was a lifelong thing for him because even at age 40, right, as his, or at age 60, as his children were born, um, we, we know that. Food was an important element in Isaac's life. He loved good food. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The Bible even doesn't uh, say that that's wrong. The issue is it's just a characteristic of Isaac. He loves good food. But it's in the context of what he loves that he's willing to sacrifice that which is eternal. And there's a warning for us there. That which we love or that which we enjoy, the good can be the enemy of best. Or in this case... That which is temporary can seek to steal our attention and affections more than the eternal, ultimately, with God as its focus. Do you treasure the Lord above anything else? I'm right there with you. I read the Psalms. David, a man after God's own heart, even though he was one of the most grievous sinners as we see in in the text of the Bible. He wrote things like, my soul pants for you, O God. Like a deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. Do we thirst like that after God? Or as he says, there's nothing I desire more than you. I've sung songs like that. Is my heart really there? It's convicting to me. Do I love him more than life? Read the Psalms. We we often think, oh, he had such a wonderful relationship with God. But Yes, he did. But look at that. What shines off the pages is just God's work in David. Oh, that he would work in our hearts, that we would desire him like that. That God, you can take everything I have. You can take it all. You're worthy. You are worthy of all of it. I don't want to give you just a portion or a tithe. I give you all of it. I'm called to be a living sacrifice. It's yours. There's nothing greater than you. And while there's times in our lives that we may be able to express that and even mean it in our hearts in the moment, this Christian life is a long journey. And he wants all of us to be living sacrifices. So it's a warning there. Thirdly, Look at the warning in verse four, that we're not to allow personal favoritism to blind us in doing what is right. This was a lifelong struggle with Isaac and Rebekah. They were playing favorites with Esau and Jacob. And you almost saw it back all the way at the beginning of chapter 25, this split. You already see it, that Rebekah's got her favorite, Isaac's got his own, and this is just going to play out, humanly speaking, unless God intervenes, which he does. Isn't it interesting that in this context that we are challenged, that personal favoritisms blind us at times from doing what is right. Beware of this great tendency of ours to play favorites with people. God didn't play favorites. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you might say, well, even in God's election, he's playing favorites, is he not? In his great purposes, he is God, we are not. And so we seek to apply human wisdom at times to God's ultimate plan, and we find ourselves failing. And we ought to ask, why are we trying to be like the potter when we are not in his position? Fourthly, a warning, to let us not seek to fulfill, as we see in verse four, God's will our way. As mentioned before, we see that in the text that Rebecca's plotting, she's lying, she's conniving, she's deceiving, and she's including others in her sinful plots. Why? To get her desired ends. Rather than just yielding to the Lord. Ultimately, what she's doing, God is going to use. But isn't it interesting that the passage goes this way? How often are we seeking to fulfill what God has promised our way? Think of sinful responses that we have even to God's promises. We we tend to be nonchalant about our lives because, oh, it's all going to burn anyway, and and Jesus is coming back, and I'm going to be saved. Well, how could that attitude, even though those are truths that we just said, how can those truths affect our daily life as believers? To invest well, to disciple people as if Christ wasn't returning for a thousand years and not just with the focused intensity on evangelism. We're called to both. There's a presumption there that we're seeking to fulfill God's will our way rather than trust him and yield to him. Fifthly, last warning, let us beware of human wisdom in seeking to solve our predicaments rather than trust the Lord. Beware of human wisdom in seeking to solve our human predicaments rather than trusting the Lord. We all do this. We look at a problem and we try to fix it rather than ultimately say, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? How would you have me to respond? So those are five warnings. Lastly, I wanna challenge us with two exhortations and ultimately in looking at this text, the reminder here that God has been giving himself and clearly committing himself through the text all the way through that he was going to raise up a people for himself and the joy of this for us this morning is that God is extending that to us that we are being given the option to turn to him in faith and repentance and so if you've never done that my invitation to you this morning and God's invitation ultimately from this text is that we would humble ourselves like we see the need in this text to him to realize that he is great, that he is the one that is worthy of all of our worship, that he is the one that we must give account to, and we realize we cannot save ourselves, but he died for us and rose again on our behalf, that we might be justified. Look to him in faith. So we're called to trust him and take him at his word, which is the opposite of what Isaac and Rebecca were doing in this circumstance. They were told that the older would serve the younger, And they weren't listening. So that's the first challenge. Last exhortation here would be ultimately from the whole passage here. That in all the twists and turns of dysfunction, humanly speaking, in our human relationships, we need to trust God to bring about his desired ends. We just cannot see behind the providential curtain. We're not given that. And so even in the ways that we've been sinned against, or the way that we have sinned against others, or the drama and tension in our families, let alone God's family, let alone every other relationship in our lives, that God is in control and we need to trust him. And we need further to rejoice that we belong to him and that he's bringing these things to pass and we need to entrust those that don't even know him ultimately into his hands for the story's not over. I want to close with reading again from a passage that we quoted uh, earlier uh, in this series in Romans in how God was orchestrating these things. And the Apostle Paul uses this very passage to make his point uh, to the Roman Christians in what God was doing both with Jew and Gentile to bring many sons to glory. And he says this in Romans chapter 9 starting in verse 10. And he says this, he says, does not, does not he not certainly speak for our sake? For it is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope that the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If not to share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And what he's revealing there is ultimately in the sowing in hope that God would bring out from this much fruit. But it's very interesting as he's quoting these things um, in both 1 Corinthians and in Romans that God is ultimately going to bring fruit from these things. And so in, I'm sorry, I just read the 1 Corinthians passage and I told you to turn to Romans, didn't I? Look at Romans, I'm now going to Romans, Romans chapter 9 and look at, uh, I think I gave you the wrong ones. On, I'm really sorry about that. It's correct, not Romans nine ten, 10. Um, but I read, I read uh, 1 Corinthians as well about the sowing. So he says in verse 10, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done things neither either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with, with God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Paul's point, God is completely in control. And he's orchestrating even the sinfulness of man, the dysfunction of Isaac and Rebecca's family to his ultimate desired ends. And in the end, we see, even as Paul's using this, that we are to be silent and to awe at God's mercy. And it's not in the fact that he chooses some and hardens others, as we see this text clearly teaches, but ultimately that he would show mercy on anyone. And we see in this beautiful text something that I think appeals to us in human nature. Isaac and Rebecca, the conniving, even the initiators of great dysfunction in this family that we'll continue to see in chapter 27 are the ones who receive God's great mercy. It's upon this Jacob that God desires to reveal himself and ultimately use to usher in a huge family that would become very powerful, that ultimately would be the backdrop of what God's ultimate redemptive work would be into the New Testament. And even in the context of what the Apostle Paul is preaching here in Romans 9 through 11. So all that to say, where is your heart this morning? In all the misapplication uh, mis, uh, of God's truth, in all the sin and disgusting conniving that we do, in all the dysfunction, because we all have it, and if you're denying it, you're dysfunctional, then God is applying that. He's applying it to all of us That we would yield to him and trust him, that he is sovereignly working these things to our end or to his end and ultimately for our good and for his glory. He is going to help us finish this race. He will bring us out on the other side. He is a just God and he is going to bring all things into judgment. Are we trusting him or are we trying to control how that happens? Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thinking for you for this passage. And while we may have read it over many years of our lives, maybe even in Sunday school, and we're familiar with the details of the passage, maybe you're using it in a particular new way in our lives, in this particular time of our lives, whether we find ourselves older, like Isaac in this passage, being presumptuous or thinking more about the pleasures of life, Or maybe we're parents and we're looking at this from Isaac and Rebecca's perspective. Maybe you're challenging us to not show partiality, to not show favoritism. Maybe we're called to uh, apply this in our marriages as we see Isaac and Rebecca working against each other, not with each other. To a, a, a wife who is undermining her husband and a husband who is pushing forth things that he ought not to. Or maybe we're looking at this as children as we see sibling rivalry, constant competition, constant struggle and dysfunction. Maybe we're looking at it from a sense of that that life isn't fair for Jacob and for Esau, that it seems like some people get all the goods and others have to go through suffering. And maybe we're looking at it from the disposition of all these people's hearts that they're not yielding to you. They're not finding their treasure in you. They're trying to find it for themselves. Esau and his great skill and seeking to undermine his family by marrying into idolatry. And Jacob by conniving and trying to steal that which does will belong to him but doing it in the wrong improper way. To Rebekah not trusting you and to Isaac not leading Oh, God, there's multiple applications in this text. And God, at the end of the day, we all need to bow before you and that you are sovereignly working your purposes in our lives. And Lord, forgive us for being angry, maybe even at you, for how you've brought our lives to pass. Maybe it was uh, the harshness of parents growing up or even a death of a parent. Maybe we're mad at you for things our siblings have said. Maybe we're angry in the way that family members' lives have gone. Or maybe we're angry that we just don't feel things are fair, and your still small voice is telling us they're not. But you tell us to trust you. that through all these things, that you are working them for our good and for your glory. and help us to trust you. That's where the rub comes. There's so much dysfunction so much anger, so many feelings, so many emotions, that, God, you would settle them in the only way that you do, through the blood of your cross and the power of your gospel, that we can sit like content children at your feet and say, you are good. Use these passages. Use these principles in our lives. Mold us, shape us, make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.